0: Bless the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, and we are starting to read at verse 13. And it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for the confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil amen there's a there's a lot in these few verses, a lot of different thoughts and Uh, passages of scripture that we could reference but uh, for the sake of a title I want to particularly focus on verse 18 and 19 and I want to preach this morning about the anchor of your hope. The anchor of your hope. Amen. This passage in Hebrews begins with a reference to the covenant that God made with Abraham in the book of Genesis. God had called Abraham to leave his home to leave his extended family, to leave his people, and to go out to a place that God would show him. Not in advance, but he required Abraham just to trust him. And the call that God placed upon Abraham's life included promises. Promises of a people, of a nation that would come from his descendants and of a place in great favor with God. And Genesis chapters 12 to 24 record the journey of abraham and his experiences with god along the way and uh i there's we could read an awful lot of scripture but for the sake of brevity i'm just going to reference certain stories and if they're not too familiar with you i'd encourage you to read those passages afterwards but this portion of genesis tells us a story of two people who could not have children naturally two people that God had made incredible promises to that were not able to even have a single child. And as time went by, that promise seemed to get further and further away. And it includes a time in their lives when their faith stumbled. Abraham's faith was a little challenged and we could suggest that he maybe stumbled and he and his wife took matters into their own hands and That's another story, and it talks to us about the heartache and the frustration that those actions caused when Abraham and Sarah tried to force things to come about. I'm glad this morning that we are able to observe that Abraham had a season of doubt because it reminds me that as God brought him through, he can bring me through when my faith is maybe not off the charts, when it's just a little bit of meal in the bottom of a barrel, God is still able to keep me. He's still able to preserve me. He's still faithful. He has still not changed. Amen. And then finally, finally Abraham and Sarah reach a point in their journey when all natural solutions were completely gone. The ability for either of them to, to be involved in, in having children was simply no longer possible. And it was at this point that God showed His hand. And miraculously, the child of promise, Isaac, was born. And uh, I would suggest today that if you have to wait for a miracle, I would rather wait and have a fully blessed promise from God than to have a half-blessed, messed-up, man-made solution to my problem. Amen. God blessed Ishmael. He did because he was Abraham's son. But that was a half-blessed, half-God, half-man situation that never really worked and still doesn't work to this day. But finally, when God did the miracle, the blessing was complete. The plan of God was fulfilled. But then in chapter 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him as an act of worship upon an altar. And even though the old man's heart was heavy, Abraham by this point had come to trust God with everything within him. And so in faith, going against everything that was in him, he took his son and climbed Mount Moriah and was in the process of going through the actions of making that sacrifice. And it's there that God intervened at the last minute and stopped the sacrifice from taking place. And God then, as as Abraham demonstrated his faithfulness, the conversation between God and Abraham that took place after the Lord had stopped the sacrifice, is the Lord was reminding Abraham or repeating to Abraham the promises that he had made. And it's this exchange between Abraham and and God on Mount Moriah that is being referenced to by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 where we just read. It is in this passage, if you read it, it's Genesis twenty-two sixteen, where it tells us that God swore by himself. In other words, he said, I've made you these promises, and I'm going to swear by myself to keep those promises. And the principle that's communicated to us in Hebrews 6 is that when men want to make an oath, or they want to guarantee something, they will swear by a higher authority or a higher power making themselves accountable to that higher authority that they must do what they've said they will do they're bringing in a witness to say this person or this authority or or this situation is a demonstration of how serious i am about what i'm saying that i'm going to do but god's problem was that he couldn't find anybody higher than himself when he looked around for a greater witness there was nobody Because the Bible says, is there any beside me? Yea, I know not any. So God swore by himself, which to us seems a little bit dysfunctional. But but what God was really saying was, Abraham, I've made you these promises. I've entered into a covenant with you and I'm guaranteeing that my promises are still true and that I will never change my word to you. That's what it's saying. It seems like, well, if he promised, why did he have to swear? It was God emphasizing to Abraham, my promises are still the same. They do not change. Sometimes that language is hard for us to understand. It's like in in the book of Psalms, I think it's the 46th Psalm, where it says that God is our very present help in time of trouble. In our understanding, you're either present or you're not. But the Lord is emphasizing His nearness. He's emphasizing the fact that when you're in that time of trouble, brother Abud, that he is present. But he's not just present, he's very present. He's saying, understand clearly, I'm not nearby, I'm not down the street, I'm right there when you're going through that time of trouble. And in verse 17, it says that God wanted to show those to whom he had made the promises, or the heirs of promise, it uses a, a nice big expression it says the immutability of his counsel now immutable is not a word i use every day in conversation but immutability means that it's speaking about something that cannot change it cannot change it cannot be changed it is set amen and then verse 18 says that by two immutable things two unchangeable things now There is some discussion about what they are, but the general consensus is that they are both his promises and his oath or his guarantee of those promises. So by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, as Christians, we should never lie. We should never be dishonest. We should always be truthful. I thought I'd get at least one amen for that. We may have to teach on honesty next Sunday morning. But as Christians, we should always try to be honest, but it is still within our ability to lie. You come under pressure, the situation's not in your favor, we can be tempted to lie, but the scripture says that it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. Because everything he says, whether it goes against everything that we think, if it comes from the mouth of God, it is by definition truth. It cannot, he cannot lie, he cannot say something that isn't true and because of this still staying in hebrew six so keep that open because you're going to probably reference there again as we go along because of the fact that it is impossible for god to lie you and i it says we or you and i of the church might have a strong consolation or a hope or a reassurance or a comfort or something to hang on to because we have fled for refuge, to take hold of hope. And the Bible tells us, I didn't get anywhere near as many scriptures as I could have, but a few that remind us of the fact that God's word does not change. In Numbers twenty-three nineteen, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? The 119th Psalm says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40, 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Luke 21, 33 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Second Corinthians 1 and 20 says, For all of the promises of God are in him, A yea and amen. His word cannot be changed. He does not lie. He does not change. And so if he said it, you can take it to the bank. Thank you, Jesus. And the picture that the writer is painting for us speaks of us fleeing or running away from something. We're fleeing from something to take a hold of hope that is offered to us by the promises of God. God is saying, I've made some promises, you can trust in them. But the Bible describes us as fleeing, which means we're getting away from something to take a hold of something else. Amen. And when I think about fleeing, I cannot help but consider, it seems like every day in the news at the moment there are terrorist attacks. Of one sort or another, they seem to be happening so often. So many places, whether it's explosives or or gunfire or vehicles being used as as weapons of destruction the scene is always one of chaos people fleeing for their lives those that manage to escape and some of them it's only barely their view of life is never the same again because of the experience that they've been through and this morning i have absolutely no desire to be insensitive or to make light of the tragic suffering that's taking place in our world but If we could see the spiritual landscape of our world as easily as we can see the natural landscape, we would see the chaos. We would see that there are people fleeing in all directions, looking for hope, looking for refuge looking for something they can hang on to, looking for something that will not fail them, that will not let them down. But sin and the deceit of the devil, it's like a desert and a a mirage in a hot desert. It looks so attractive when you get there and you reach for it, it vanishes. It's gone. And our world is full of people that are fleeing here and there, desperate for refuge. But the Bible says that we have a hope. We have a refuge, and the hope that Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about is not an illusion. It's not false. It's real. It does not change this morning. It is an anchor for our soul. It is an anchor for our souls today. Hallelujah. And anchors anchors come in many shapes and sizes, but the basic purpose or function of an anchor remains the same and that is that something that is movable is connected to something that is immovable. That's the basic principle of an anchor. And something, or in our case, someone, you and I, someone that to the casual observer is exposed to the wind and the waves, the sea of life, just like everybody else, but below the surface, there is a connection. There's an anchor. That's connected to a rock that has stood the test of time. In fact, the Bible tells us that that rock was ordained before time even began. And I want to remind the church this morning that you have an anchor, that I have an anchor, that we have an anchor. There is something that we can hang on to that does not change. That God said, I cannot lie. If I made the promise, you can stand on it. You can hang on to it. If I said it, it's true. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 19 of Hebrews 6 tells us that our anchor is both sure and steadfast. And it is unchangeable. And I ask the question, Why? is it sure? Why is it steadfast? And I believe the next verse gives us some insight. It tells us that it it enters into that which is within the veil. This hope and this anchor enters into that which is within the veil. Amen. And if you know much of the Old Testament, you know much of the book of Hebrews, you'll know that Hebrews spends a considerable amount of time emphasizing that what was provided under the Old Testament covenant has been replaced by a better, superior New Testament covenant. That's really the focal point of the epistle of Hebrews. And the writer of chapter 6 is not wanting us to have some mental picture of a literal anchor that's on the end of a rope that vanishes behind a curtain into some small room. But we know that the Word of God tells us, in fact, the book of Hebrews tells us, In chapter 10 and verse 20, that that veil that was there in the tabernacle and in the temple, and uh, I'd love to be able to spend an hour breaking down the tabernacle and the temple, but I don't want to take that much time. But that veil represented the flesh or the humanity of Jesus Christ. That which was given to Moses and the Israelites held on to was looking ahead to when he would be manifest in the flesh. That veil It was symbolic of His humanity in the same way that the veil in the tabernacle enclosed that which was the holiest of all. And when you get to the New Testament, you read that in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so in that same way, that flesh enclosed everything that was holy and complete about God and who He is and what He represents. But we know that when He went to Calvary, The tearing of that veil or the breaking of his flesh through his suffering and death offers you and I access into what was previously hidden behind the veil and what was contained within him. Amen. That's why he could make statements like, I am the door. That's why he could say, no man can come to the Father but by me. That's why he could stand on that last day, the great day of the feast, and say, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He is the access point, the tearing of his flesh, the breaking of his body revealed and made accessible to humanity that which had been locked away for centuries. Bless the Lord. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that is within the vial If that's where our hope is we need to know what's in there what is our hope anchored to and those of you that know the old testament know that the only thing as far as furniture is concerned that was in that holiest place was the ark of the covenant it was that wooden box that god gave them very specific dimensions for and the bible says that it was inlaid and overlaid with pure gold it was very very valuable and the question is well what's the box in there for what's in the box and it's, it's interesting, actually, because when you read First Kings chapter eight and verse nine, it says there was nothing in the ark save two tablets of stone, nothing in there except for the law, the, the, the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. But when you read Hebrews chapter nine and verse four, it tells us that in the ark there were the tablets of stone, but there was also a golden pot of manna, and Aaron, the high priest's rod that budded now which is right which is the accurate scripture that's that's the perfect answer actually all the scripture is accurate but depending upon which commentators you read some suggest that the pot of manna and aaron's rod were only inside the ark for a certain period of history possibly until solomon built the temple that's one school of thought Another is that some suggest that the original language in the Old Testament indicates that these items were placed close by the Ark of the Covenant. So you can discuss that and look that up. I know I've probably got a few people's curiosity running away, but come back to us and leave that for another time. But regardless of what the exact detail is, the fact that the writer of Hebrews mentions the pot of manna and Aaron's rod means that they're significant. It means they have significance to us. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the Scripture. So I want to consider these few objects for just a minute and see if the Lord can help us. The tablets of stone, we understand, the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they represent the Word of God. They represent the Word of God. They were the foundation of the covenant that God made with Israel. They were the platform that God gave His promises to His people. The pot of manna. Manna was the miraculous food that God provided for them in the wilderness. Every day in the morning they get up and it was just there on the ground. They had to gather it and God miraculously preserved them with that manna. And Aaron's rod or his rod could be a walking stick. They could use it to fend off animals or whatever else they needed a stick for. It was a dried up piece of wood, a dead piece of wood that God miraculously caused. Overnight, overnight, a dead piece of wood brought forth buds and flowers and almonds. Now, I'd like to see a living tree do that overnight, let alone a dead one. But the power of God moved, and that dead dry stick brought forth buds and flowers and almonds overnight. Now, I have often thought, and to confess, preached, that these three things represent something. That the tablets of stone represent the living word of God. That the pot of manna represents God's miraculous provision for his people. And that Aaron's rod represents God's ability to bring life where there was death. And I believe that's accurate. I do. I believe that's accurate. To a point. But I believe there's also in these objects a reminder of man's connection this situation you see the israelites and the rest of humanity including you and i failed to keep the word of god and stand judged by it the israelites also the manna came about because they were complaining they wanted to go back to egypt and eat the food they were used to in egypt and so the lord provided for them he gave them manna but even after a while they got sick of that and they complained about that as well so it doesn't speak very highly of humanity in that sense Aaron's rod budded you see we, when you read that in isolation you think wow but Aaron's rod budded because there had been rebellion against the God ordained leadership of Moses and Aaron that in the previous chapter to the rod budding cost about 15,000 Israelites their lives Korah, Dathan and Abraham stood up, rebelled the Lord judged them caused the ground to swallow them up. The next day, the people, who obviously didn't learn very quickly, begin to complain again and said, you've killed the people of God, and another 14,700 of them died as well. And then the Lord gave instruction. He got a leader from every tribe. He said, Aaron from the tribe of Levi, and a leader from all the other tribes to bring their rods, their walking sticks, bring them to the house of God and leave them there overnight. And in the morning, Aaron's rod was the only one with, with flowers and almonds on it. And the reason, if you read the scripture, if I can paraphrase it in modern English, the reason that God did that was to teach the people to shut up and stop whinging. That's not King James, but you read it. The Lord said, this is so the people will learn not to complain. That's what the Lord said to Moses. He said, that's why we got nuts on this stick. That's what this is about. That's the new, New Simon version of the book of Numbers. Sorry, bit of paraphrasing there. Bless the Lord. And so we need to understand that all these objects that were within the veil had a twofold statement. One was the power of God. But the other one was man's shortcomings. Both of those are represented by what is found within the veil in the Holy of Holies. And so that sort of takes the gloss off it a little bit. We just look at the God side of the story. Everything's, wow, God is awesome. God is amazing. But when we look at the humanity side of it, we think, well, we're pretty ordinary. And hey, we are, let's be honest. Well, I certainly am. But fortunately for us, the story doesn't end there. When we take another look at what actually was within the veil, in that box, made of wood, inlaid and overlaid with gold, the tablets of stone, the pot of manna, the rod, whether they were in the box or outside of the box, is not particularly relevant right at the moment. But on that same box, across the top, was a solid gold lid. No timber. Nothing that represented ordinary. A solid gold lid that the Bible refers to as the mercy seat. And every year, on a particular day, when a suitable sacrifice had been offered, the blood was carried by the high priest into behind the veil and into the holiest of holies and that blood was sprinkled upon that solid gold mercy seat and in that place where god's holiness cannot be compromised sister patricia talked to us about that a couple of weeks ago but in that place where the holiness of god cannot be compromised and his word was there and it cannot be changed and man's shortcomings were there for all to see because the blood was applied the holiness of God was turned, as it were, to mercy and judgment was withheld just because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So the picture is bigger. Amen. But all of this, all of this, and we could, we could talk about each component for days because there's so much richness in the word of God, but all of this is still just a type. It's still just a picture That the writer of Hebrews was trying to use to show us something greater. The writer of Hebrews was not interested in an Old Testament history lesson. He was using a picture they understood to communicate a much more powerful principle that was in their present, not in their past. Because in the man Jesus Christ, the word of God, the Bible says, was made flesh And just as that acacia wood was inlaid and overlaid with pure gold, so that which was beyond value was somehow manifest in the ordinary, in that which nobody saw any value in, just wood, just an ordinary substance. The Bible says that when they saw him, there was nothing about him that would cause them to desire him. He looked like every other Jewish kid in that neighborhood, but within that vessel... Within that ordinary, there is something that could not be priced. Something that has no value because it is priceless. He is the Word of God, just like the tablets of stone. He is also the miraculous provision of our needs. The Bible says He will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory. He is the one that still brings life where there was death. Jesus said to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But just like in the ark, in that same body, he bore the failures of you and I, he took ownership of every one of my sins and on the cross his blood saved me from judgment as much as his glory was revealed you see when god reveals his glory just by default it reveals our shortcomings because the bible says that when light shines darkness is exposed the things that are hidden become seeable for everybody And it wasn't that God came to judge or to to condemn, but simply by the holiness of who he was when he is declared, we are exposed. That's just how it is. And in that same body that fulfilled all of those examples from the Ark of the Covenant, he also is the mercy seat. He also is the place where blood was shed and so our anchor this morning is not in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's not in the temple in Jerusalem. But as the hymn writer said, On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. He is still my anchor this morning. He's still what I'm holding on to. I wish I had a big fat rope here today, but he's still the one that said, if you'll hang on to me, it'll never come loose. It'll never slip off. It'll never be moved because he cannot be moved. Hallelujah. Lift your hands and worship here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, God. When I stand in his presence, my sins are all exposed before him. They're all exposed. His word clearly shows my failures. Clearly. There's no, there's no ambiguity. When I look at the word of God and I put it against myself, I see, I see sin, I see brokenness. Just like the ark represented to the nation of Israel. He has provided my needs. So many times, just like the manor in the wilderness, and just like the Israelites, I've still complained. I've still whinged about circumstances and situations and muttered and grumbled when God has given me things I don't deserve. At times, I've tried to oppose His authority in my life because of my own stubbornness, my own carnality. And He's reminded me again that that's where He commands the blessing. That's where he commands the blessing. And if I will submit myself to that again, that benefit is there for me again. But even though I let him down over and over and over and over, there is a solid, cold mercy seat that's stained with the blood of an old ragged cross. And this morning, that's where my anchor is. My anchor is on that solid, gold mercy seat. His blood is still there. The devil comes and he says, but that tells me you're a failure. That tells me you complain. That tells me that sometimes you're rebellious. And I say, devil, the blood of Jesus is against you. He is my testimony. He is my witness this morning. Stand with me if you wouldn't worship him today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh God, oh God, Jesus, Hallelujah, Jesus, Hallelujah, Jesus, Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh Jesus. oh hallelujah hallelujah i want to encourage you today to hold on to your anchor hold on to that rope i know that for some of you the wind is awfully strong and the waves are high but hold on to that anchor he's coming back we've got to hang on church hallelujah let jesus fight your battles let Jesus bring you through. Don't try to force your own miracles. Let God take care of it. Don't give yourself a man-made mess, but hang on for a blessed miracle. Hallelujah! Oh, Hallelujah, Jesus! Oh, Hallelujah, Jesus! Is another old hymn as I close this morning that says, "Throw out the lifeline." throw out the lifeline brother paul you probably know it someone has drifted away this morning as we stand in his presence if you've never taken a hold of that hope today he's here he wants to be your anchor not to hold you down to hold you in (laughs) to hang on so that when he comes back lord i'm still holding on somehow by grace and by mercy if you've never taken an opportunity to take hold of Jesus this morning, is your opportunity. If you will come to the front of this church. You can kneel. You can sit. You can stand and say, God, I don't understand all that stuff he was talking about from the Old Testament, but God, I feel something in me. I need that hope. I need that anchor today. I need something that will hold me in my storm. And for one reason or another, you've made decisions to let go of that anchor he's still throwing out the lifeline. He stands, as it were, on the bow of the ship and he throws out that lifeline. He says, take hold. Hang on. I'm still the resurrection. I'm still the life. I'm still the healer of all diseases. I'm still the provider. I'm still the one who gives mercy and grace. I'm still the one who knows your sins, but I'm the only one that can take them away. Hallelujah, if you will lift your hands and your voices. These altars are open if somebody wants to take a hold of their anchor this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. If you're holding on with one hand while you fight with junk, drop the junk and hang on with two hands. This is not something to be half-hearted about. I want to be there. When he comes back, I want him to find me hanging on. The scripture says, shall the Son of Man find faith in the earth when he comes? Hallelujah. God, you're my refuge. Help us to flee to you this morning, Lord. To take hold of you this morning, Lord God. Not to allow anything to get between us. Oh God, I pray. Help us to keep your word. Help us to be thankful for your provision. God, help us to let you lead us and guide us with your power and your authority. Command a blessing this morning, I pray, in our lives, Lord God. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Church, we have this hope for an anchor this morning. That word is there for a reason. It's the only place you'll see it in that context. It's there for us to hang on to. It's there for us to take hold of and never let go of. Hallelujah, Jesus. Word of God says that no man can pluck you out of my Father's hand. If we commit everything to Him, nothing can break that. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, Hallelujah. Some of us that need to see God's face this morning. Don't sit there and wonder. Just come and pray. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, you're our anchor today, Lord.